I'm David Aiken, and you're listening to The West Block. The U.S. Defense Secretary held an extraordinary meeting last week in Germany with 40 different countries to shore up more military aid for Ukraine. We want to see Russia uh, uh, weakened uh, to the degree that it can't uh, do the kinds of things that uh, it has done uh, in, in invading Ukraine. The White House has also asked Congress to approve a $33 billion aid package for Ukraine. Ukraine. So what does this mean for what's happening on the ground in that country? I'm joined now by retired U.S. General Philip Breedlove. He is a former NATO Supreme Allied Commander. He's also the Distinguished Chair at the Middle East Institute. General, thanks so much for joining us. And I'm sure you took note of that uh, conference in Germany. You heard what Defense Secretary Austin said. If you were a commander and he told you we need to weaken Russia, what does that mean? How are we going to measure it? And how does the U.S. and its allies like Canada go about this process of weakening Russia? It's an extraordinary uh, statement. And David, thanks for having me on your show. But it was not the only extraordinary statement. The fact that we are starting now as a policy to use the word win, in other words, enabling Ukraine to win this war, that is extraordinary. And then to hear those words, which is a whole nother level of ambition for what this war might uh, turn up as far as weakening Russia. I would offer that we've already weakened Russia. They suffered a strategic defeat in the north around Kyiv. They lost a lot of vehicles, a lot of men and equipment, and it's gonna take them some time to dig out from under those problems. The, this war, of course, has so many unintended consequences for Putin. Most wars have unintended consequences for uh, their aggressors. Obviously, he cannot have expected the West to show the unity that is shown, but he is now about to get Sweden and Finland to join NATO. Or that It looks very much like those two countries are not going to remain neutral any longer in that whole strategic uh, area of the world. What does that mean to NATO? It, I'm assuming, I mean, Sweden's got some submarines. Uh, Finland's got a terrifically well-trained military. What would that mean to NATO to have Finland and Sweden as part of the alliance? Well, in a certain way, they've already been a part of the alliance because they're partner nations and they have been exercising a lot with us. In fact, uh, uh, no disrespect to some of our, uh, our newest members who come from the Warsaw Pact uh, background, these two uh, nations are almost completely compatible with NATO now. They're, their tactics, techniques, and procedures are the same. Their equipment is all uh, compatible, if not compatible, interchangeable with ours. And so these are two nations that have great military capability and, and also a lot of experience fighting Russians over the years. And they will bring an immediate uh, capability to the alliance. I welcome it. I, I would have liked to have seen it when I was the secure. The obviously Putin has been making all sorts of threats. He certainly doesn't want to see Finland and Sweden join NATO. This week we saw or last week, I should say, we saw Putin use the phrase any allies that interfere with Russian forces in the in Ukraine will suffer a lightning quick response. I'm assuming that's got to mean missiles. What did you take of that? And, and do you think it's an easy job to, to differentiate Putin's bluster from what may be actual a, a credible threat? Well, first, let's just examine what he's doing. Uh, to his credit, he has deterred NATO, the EU, and the West in an incredible way. 
Look at all the things that we are not doing that we say to him and we remind him that we're not doing. And so we are deterred. And now I think we're beginning to take those steps to try to climb out from under that deterrence. And what we see is Mr. Putin trying now to use even more inflammatory and scary language to further deter us from taking action. And I think it's very good that the West is now uh, stepping up to the plate and starting to take those steps that would begin to reverse that deterrence. You, you, you've been on the record saying we tried sanctions years ago. We tried sanctions in 2014. We're, we're doing sanctions again, and they are not changing the behavior of Putin's regime. So if not sanctions, though, what are some of those steps that you're looking at and seeing now that, that the West, Europe, the United States, Canada need to do? What's beyond sanctions? Well, when I teach at university, I use a simple model called DIME for the American coin, diplomatic, informational, military, and economic. Diplomatically, we should be going after Mr. Putin right now. People are saying we can't remove him from the Security Council. Why not? If this is not the time and if the reasons his, his horrible war on the civilian population of Ukraine, if this is not the mode to make that change, then shame on us for not trying. We need to move out. He should not be going to the G20. We need to eliminate Russia from the world stage over how they are comporting this war. Informationally, he has a massive disinformation campaign now aimed primarily internally at his own audience, but we need to be outing him with the truth. Militarily, we need to start taking those steps that the, the defense minister spoke about at Ramstein, and we need to keep enabling Ukraine to win this war. And then economically, keep the pressure on. The sanctions aren't a waste. It's just that history has determined over and over and over that it's not that alone will not change Mr. Putin's actions. Now, General, I wanted to get your opinion about the capability of the Russian forces as they gear up for new attacks in the east. They've redeployed some forces from Kiev down into the east, into the Donbass. They've got a new general. Is it that simple? Should we expect the Russian forces that failed so miserably in the north to all of a sudden be successful? Yes. So this is hard. And they only took a couple of weeks and not a lot of structural problems are not going to change in two weeks. But but for sure now they have unity of command and unity of purpose under this new commander. And we already see a little bit more discipline on the battlefield. They are moving slower than maybe they wanted to, but they are showing some differences. They will encounter the same logistical problems and other things that they have before. So it's not a done deal in the East. And, and we need to get there now with our aid to the Ukrainians. We're sending aid, but it's hitting the western side of the country now, and it's a long way away from the fight. Philip Breedloves, thank you so much for joining us today. Very much appreciate it. In court, in Parliament, and very soon at a public inquiry, the federal government is defending its use of the Federal Emergencies Act to deal with the convoy protests of last February. And the man at the center of each defense, pretty much, is Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino, who joins us now. Great to be here. Great to have you on set. It's good to do these person. things in person. Yeah, good to see you, David. I want to go back to that the, the cabinet discussions you were having. The protests are underway. The Windsor Bridge is blocked. Coots is happening. The protest is here. And we heard from Minister Lametti, Minister Blair, probably from you, that the police have all the authorities they need to deal with it. The Windsor blockade gets cleared. 
and then something changed and you declared the Emergencies Act. That was the sequence of events. Windsor's done. What happened that, or what was the information that you and your cabinet colleagues got that said, no, we need, we need the Emergencies Act now? Well, at the time, um, we were looking not only at one a particular port of entry, but the entire country. We had and Emerson, we had Coots. You got it. Yeah. White Rock uh, yeah. in at the Pack Highway in B.C. were, by the way, um, people who were engaging in the blockade had taken an armored vehicle and rammed it. Uh, into a barricade that had been set up by the CBSA, posing a real threat not only to law enforcement, to, but to other people who were trying to get through. Um, we had the situation in Emerson, in Manitoba. I recently had the chance to go there, where there were uh, obstructions to important uh, uh, um, critical supply chains. Um, we had the situation in Coots, mm -hmm. where um, on February 15th, as you may recall, um, significant criminal charges were laid. We have attempt murder on officers. Attempt murder, yeah. firearms. Conspiracy to commit murder, um, Ambassador Bridge, where, yes, you're right, we've made some progress, but where there were threats uh, that blockades could come back. There was a threat that had been made against the mayor of Windsor, Drew Dilkins, at the time, um, involving his own personal safety. Um, there was the situation here in Ottawa, which was a town that was laid to siege. And every time law enforcement uh, would try to come to the downtown core here at the foot of this building, um, they were swarmed. But they what, were threatened. What, what was it so in, in that it was the, of days I guess then? what I'm getting at yeah. is that we were um, continuing to monitor the situation very much in real time, looking at the totality of the situation, which in our judgment, combined with the advice that we got from law enforcement, that existing authorities on the books were not effective, and that is the operative word, at restoring public safety, which is why we ultimately invoked the Emergencies Act when we did, we did it with a limiting principle in mind, and as soon as we could uh, revoke, we, we, we did. So it, it, to parse that back, it's fair to say it was mostly the security issue was the more overriding issue than, say, economic harm. No, it was all of the, it was all those factors. So, okay. and, you know, we laid out in a background document when we tabled it in the House of Commons, mm -hmm. when, when we brought the motion, and we placed it in a couple of big buckets. One was the economic impact, which I know you're going to come to. Um, second was the uh, international uh, concerns raised by some of our closest allies. Let me just stop there. How yeah. important was that? Because clearly the Biden administration, there was uh, elected officials in Michigan who were saying, why are we doing business? You're with absolutely Canada? right. Was so the governor of Michigan raised it. The president of the United States raised it. Uh, U.S. labor oh. raised it. But um, that was a factor for cabinet as the, you know, the no relationship with the United States. No question. And we wanted to make sure. And I was in touch with my own counterpart. Secretary Mayorkas, mm -hmm. uh, and he was very supportive at the time, asking if there was any way that they could help from the Michigan side of the border. That was another factor. And then obviously, most importantly, the safety of the lives of Canadians. And look, for you know those who want to go back and engage in some revisionism and suggest this wasn't a serious public event, um, I would encourage them uh, uh, to uh, take into account the fact that there were literally hundreds of charges that were laid, criminal investigations as a result of the independent decisions of law enforcement who were for large, um, you know, uh, tracks of, 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 the, of the blockade and the occupation here, overwhelmed deliberately, consciously by those who are blockading. Now, I mentioned those three things, those three sort of three arenas where the government is being asked to defend itself for the use of this. That's obviously one of the purposes of the inquiry is to examine was it that in fact justified and i know there's been a lot of discussion in all those fora about cabinet confidence etc not really want to rehash that issue other than to say um, when judge rouleau gets a chance to look at some documents that the public may not get to see 
Will he get a chance to report on that? Will there be a redacted part of his report that once he files on the, once this inquiry is done? What does that, what is, what is that inquiry report going to say at the end of the day to Canadians? Well, um, ultimately, what it will say to Canadians will be up to Judge Rouleau. And uh, we've afforded him um, the full-scale powers of a commissioner uh, to compel witnesses, to compel documents, to compel information, including classified information, so that he has all of the record that he needs uh, to not only take a look at the invocation of the Emergencies Act, which, again, we're confident mm -hmm. uh, was the right call to make in all the circumstances, but equally to make some uh, practical and tangible recommendations going forward so that it never happens again. You guys, when I say you guys, Cabinet, obviously, having been through that, have a good idea on how to make sure that doesn't happen again, either blockades at border crossings, mostly blockades at border crossings. I know it was hell here in Ottawa. I lived through it myself. But it was really that blockades at border crossings that causes real international potentially damage. There was definitely an impact there. For so sure. what, what have the CBSA, I mean, some of the agencies that you're responsible for, the CBSA, the CSISs of the world, have they already learned some lessons from that? I think, I think we all have. I certainly hope that we all have. But I would just point out that while it's important that the government have those discussions internally within the community of public safety and national security, mm -hmm. that it's equally important that, that we look outside of government to get some advice, including from independent public office holders like Judge Rouleau, uh, and to also branch out into the community uh, to, to learn more about what the impacts were, um, you know, what was driving what was driving um, the illegal occupation, and I would highlight uh, that I am concerned um, in, my, in my capacity as Minister of Public Safety about the ideological extremism that uh, sparked um, uh, the occupation mm -hmm. here in Ottawa and the blockades. As you'll recall, uh, there was a manifesto that was published that demanded that all uh, mandate, uh, vaccine mandates be revoked or else the uh, Governor General should unilaterally remove the Prime Minister from office. They were a bit They're, misinformed on how our government works, but Indeed, they were absolutely misinformed, but Nonetheless, exactly, it incited thousands to uh, to descend into the nation's capital. You also had some organizers come right out and say that the only way this thing's going to end is with bullets. And then subsequent to that, you do have conflict. Were you, you getting any information that some politicians' lives were being, if not lives, uh, physical safety was in fact? Being well, threatened? I was worried about everybody. I was worried about um, you know public safety. I was worried about national security, and we were taking this situation extremely seriously. Mm -hmm. Because it was. And I would point out that um, there's, I think, a very conscious, deliberate effort by some within our political discourse uh, to try and uh, diminish and engage in some revisionism. I think that's reckless. Um, we took a responsible decision. We have a, a burden and a responsibility to protect Canadians. We didn't want to invoke the Emergencies Act. Uh, we were always, uh, I think, very reluctant to invoke and it. It was there for 10 days, just to Very briefly. Uh, and, you know, I think that that is a direct rebuttal to some who would say this was going to be an effort at overreach. No, it was a very time-limited, very targeted and charter-compliant um, act, which we invoked, and then we revoked it as soon as we could. Marco Medicino, Minister of Public Safety, thanks so much for coming in. Really Thank you, David. It costs $300,000 to get into the Conservative leadership race, and all that money had to be into Party HQ as of Friday. Our next guest made that cut. Roman Babber is an Ontario MPP elected as a progressive conservative in York Centre in 2018. But last year, in 2021, Roman was ejected from the PC caucus by Doug Ford because he objected to lockdowns and other public health measures. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But first, welcome, Roman. And I wondered, first of all, raising that kind of money, that's a lot of money. So you need a lot of people to support you. Tell us who your base is, the older, younger, urban, rural, east, west. What's the Roman Babber base look like? Who's your, who's your supporters? 
David, thank you. Indeed, uh, I'm now a verified leadership candidate. We have raised the $300,000 and the necessary signatures from across the country. And look, we're a truly grassroots movement uh, made of Canadians coast to coast that are concerned about the erosion of Canada's democracy and Canada's opportunity. Uh, our message on the need on restoring Canada's democracy is resonating with voters. And uh, we're, we're in the habit of, of exceeding expectations with our campaign, and I hope that we'll continue to do so. Let, let's talk about sort of the, the obviously you were sort of thrust into the national spotlight, if you will, as a legislator who uh, left, your, left your caucus over the issue of lockdowns. Lockdowns was a big animating force in the last election. And that, as you say, looking for to restore some choice, some democratic values, etc. But this, if you win the leadership, the conservative leadership, you may not see an election until 2025. Is that still going to be an animating factor in three or four years? Look, I think it's an error to think that I'm running on, on COVID or, or lockdowns. What we're running on, what I'm most focused on is the erosion of Canada's democracy. We're watching uh, still uh, more than three and a half million Canadians cannot board a plane or a train. Many Canadians are forced to choose between their health and their ability to put food on the table. But We're Roman, hold on. Surely in, in, in three or four years, those three million Canadians will be on a plane because the public health measures will have changed. Like, in other words, what I'm suggesting well, is you're fighting yesterday's battle, not looking forward to... We had James Moore and Brad Wall on last week that said Conservatives have to focus on the economy. That's the most important thing. If, if I may, uh, uh, David, and of course I'm going to focus on the economy, uh, we're printing money. Our 1.3 trillion debt is unsustainable, and I intend to uh, introduce a very robust energy and natural resources plan, also a housing plan. But in, in the moment right now, we still have close to 4 million Canadians that are subject to unprecedented discrimination. But beyond that, beyond the public health measures, we are seeing uh, unprecedented censorship by government, uh, professional regulators, and, and social media. We just saw the seizing of bank accounts without a court order using what I believe to be uh, eventually would be found an unlawful emergency declaration. Uh, we see uh, Quebec Bill 21, which prevents Canadians from practicing their faith without a bona fide occupational requirement. Um, what you just said, I've heard a lot from, let's say, Leslin Lewis, who is against Bill 21, uh, forcing people to divulge vaccination uh, candidates. What's wrong with Leslin Lewis, says the leader? She ran last time. A lot of people liked her. Why are you a better choice than, in this instance, Leslin? I uh, have a lot of respect for Leslin, just like every other candidate. I would say one distinguishing factor uh, between myself and, and many other candidates, as you have mentioned, uh, I was asked to leave the Progressive Conservative Caucus in January 2021 in my opposition to the lockdowns. I was not uh, afraid to speak out against the mainstream narrative, against the culture, prevailing culture of the day. I put my political career on the line because I wasn't going to continue watching uh, the collateral effect of lockdowns uh, potentially perpetrate remarkable harm on Canadians. And that's what voters can always expect from me. Let me ask you then about Pierre Polyev's candidacy. You've seen the, the, the crowd sizes he's getting. Your crowds aren't too bad either. I've been watching your social media accounts, but he's getting some remarkable sized crowds. Polls say he's the front runner. Um, he too is all about freedom, doesn't like gatekeepers. You've heard his uh, the phrases he uses. Why are you a better pick again than Pierre Polyev, who's currently in the, in the House of Commons? He won't need to run in a by-election if he becomes a leader. Again, just like with Leslin, I think that, that Pierre's a very good candidate. Uh, he's articulate, he's intelligent. And um, I, I think that once, once we end 
um, this leadership race, I hope that we all come out united. I, I do have some distinguishing uh, facts with Pierre Poliev, for instance. Uh, I oppose Quebec Bill 21. I'm, I'm not sure that Pierre uh, has the same position. I, I would also not seek to protect supply management. I would seek to phase it out. But, but again, as I would say, um, I have been uh, on, on the democracy message from day one. Uh, I felt that we have an obligation to Canadians and we should not fear to stand up to uh, Justin Trudeau or, or cancel culture or those that said that we need to lock down 35 million Canadians and make them sick. And uh, I, I don't believe that uh, that any, in fact, of the leadership candidates uh, articulated that message clearly until the truck convoy came to town. Roman Babbard, good luck in the race and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, David. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. I'm David Aiken, and this is The West Block.